they're throwing it in the field. You know what I mean? Yeah, Johnson and Johnson. Baby oil. <laughs> um, maybe turn it up just a little bit. That sound good. Um, Jeremy. Great, great. How are you? I don't know if I'd call it a holiday, I am. Uh, well, I'll have three in a row once I leave on Friday. I've got uh, Notre Dame Saturday and Temple UConn Sunday and Virginia Miami Monday. Uh, I'll be the analyst for all three of those. Yes, I'm here. Um, I will be with Dave on Sunday. I believe on Mike Cousins on Saturday, and I believe at Sean McDonough on Monday. So three games, three different guys. No, I'm used to it, to be honest with you. It's, um, it happens quite frequently, so, you know, I'm, I'm at this point kind of used to it. No, no, I like them all. No, they're all good guys, obviously stylistically different, but very good. Okay, cool. Okay, sounds good.
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. Yes, I do. In fact, I remember the very first broadcast um, I ever did. Uh, it was going, you know, pretty well. I'm, I'm broadcasting Providence College women's basketball. I had been an assistant coach for two years. Ninety-nine percent sure it was a Big East game. So uh, I remember the teams. I knew the teams obviously very well. I had just been doing all the scouting the year before, so that that side of things was not a big deal to me. However, I had never. Uh, taken a single communications course, didn't know sort of what I was doing in any way, shape, or form. And so I was somewhat nervous, and the game starts off pretty well. I think I'm fitting in pretty quickly. As you know, um, radio to me is a perfect way to train to, to be an analyst on television because you're required to be pretty concise with your words. Um, but there was a point at which I tried to say free throw, and because I was nervous, I couldn't get it out, and I just kind of choked up on the word free. And uh, the, the partner I had was a long-tenured broadcaster, and we kind of just smiled at each other, had a good laugh at my expense, and it was what it was. Well, I'll be honest with you. You know, I have worked so often with Beth and with Holly. Uh, I would consider those two, two women friends of mine, to be perfectly honest with you. And on top of that, you know, all three of us have been in the business for an extended period of time. I can tell you I was thrilled that, uh, that Beth got the opportunity, obviously. Uh, early on in my broadcasting career, Beth was the play-by-play -play quite often for games we would do on what was then the Big East Women's Television Network. And because I was new uh, at TV, Beth was sort of required on a couple of moments to rescue me. And uh, just, you know, we'd be doing it open and I might freeze on a word or, you know, sort of get myself down a path on the telecast. And Beth always had such great touch at getting me out. So uh, obviously, you know, I'm thrilled to have Dave O'Brien back this year as the, the guy calling the, the the championship because we've been doing it a long time, but I was so, so, so happy for Beth Mullen to get that opportunity. I think she's the best female play-by-play -play in the business. And for Holly Rowe, you know, she is, as you know, maybe the most liked and well-respected broadcaster in the entire country. Um, so that was a thrill. It was really, really a lot of fun on an event we all enjoy so much. You know, I don't know. I would hope at this point, guys, that we're beyond trying to put together, uh, you know, a team uh, exclusively made 
uh, up of women simply because they think, you know, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, we've all been at it for a long time. I think we've all worked very hard to earn the positions we've had. I mean, they may, and it may be by coincidence, but, uh, you know, I think there's enough broadcasters around male and female to, uh, to put teams together based probably on, on something more than just gender, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would say like a lot of other jobs that you're trying to acquire if you're young, it's going to be a competitive landscape. You're going to be told no fairly consistently. Um, that you're probably going to start by maybe doing jobs that you hadn't anticipated or that, you know, you don't, or you may question once you have them, is this helping me ultimately get where I want to go? And I often say that no job is too small. I started on Providence College Women's Basketball Radio. I can't imagine there was more than 25 listeners unless it was by accident somebody flipping the dial through the, you know, as they were driving around in a car in the state of Rhode Island. Um, so no job is too small. You've got to hone your abilities uh, in whatever environment you happen to find yourself in, sort of embrace what's in front of you and just keep working. Well, I admire many people. I always say to young broadcasters, you can't try to be someone else. You know, sometimes you'll hear an announcer and you'll think, ooh, you know, are they trying to sound like so-and-so? But one person as an analyst who I have always had great respect for and so appreciate his style is Jay Billis. Uh, I think Jay is the best college basketball analyst ESPN has. I think he's the best college analyst in the country. Uh, so he is someone I have great great respect for, and I'm so happy I've, I've been able to make his friendship over the years. At the NBA level, I've got uh, such great respect for Jeff and Mark, and, and they're so different. You know, you know, Jeff has sort of a sarcastic, fun sense of humor. Mark has got a, a real panache about the way he calls an NBA game in terms of style and color. I call what he does definitely color color analyst because there's – there's this unique vibe about what, what Mark does, and obviously great credentials um, on either side of things. But uh, uh, any number of people that I have had great ad- admiration for. I know when I first started sideline work, being a reporter, I had no idea how to do it. And so, of course, the first person I called was Michelle Pafoya, uh, because I think she is the best in the business um, and has been for a long time on the sideline. Um, so she's someone also when I was doing a ton of reporter work that I was in contact with sort of saying, hey, how do I handle this? How do I handle that? So that's, those are three among or four among many, many people who I have respect and appreciate their abilities. Yeah, you know, even back through then, my relationship with Pop was excellent. You know, I think that there's, um, 
you know, I think there's mutual respect on both sides. Certainly, I know Mike Green always says on the air, would you let me say during the course of the telecast how much Pop likes and respects you, respects you? And I, I laugh and, uh, you know, like most sideline reporters in the NBA, you, you, you do your job to the highest degree possible, you know, with Pop the questions may or may not get answered and you just kind of keep it moving. But away from that several moments you see on the side, um, you know, most people in the NBA, including all the sideline reporters, believe it or not, have great respect for him and he vice versa. Well, I'll, I'll give you both sides of the coin here. I'm going to tell you a surefire way to get a disdainful look or, uh, or you know, a clipped, incredibly clipped answer or a laugh or some sort of sarcastic response is to editorialize in any way or to make an observation. You know, Pop, I think if that's one way to get the, a response that you're not going to be very, very excited about. On the other side, if you try to keep your question as open-ended as possible. So, for instance, uh, I'll very often say to Greg Popovich, Pop, what did you see in that 12 minutes from your defense? Or, um, you know, you talked to us in the pregame about X. How did you think that went in that particular quarter? So I think to try to ensure some measure of success, which doesn't always guarantee it, I always just ask the most open-ended question possible. Yeah. Well, it's funny you ask because I just did two hours of that this morning, and the beauty is uh, as of a, a couple of months ago, uh, they came here to my home in Rhode Island and uh, sort of set up an environment that mimics the studio uh, that we do it at, typically in California. And so no different than that, I have a microphone, uh, a computer screen that sort of has the prompts and things that we're looking to get accomplished. Um, and then it's about, you know, just delivering line after line after line. It can be a monotonous uh, process, but I will say, uh, the company that I work for does an amazing job trying to put you in the space uh, that you need to be in uh, to, to deliver it as well as possible. No. Uh, so basically there might be a prompt of some sort, but generally, you know, you have to, you have to be you, right? You want that game to feel authentic. And so you're going to have to try your best to to deliver a line the way you might do a line on you know on a real game right it should it should feel like a game as much as possible and obviously maybe there's a little bit more freedom uh, to have a little bit more fun because it is it is obviously a video game
Well, I happened to be in the building for that particular game, and my location, my seat location, uh, was on the complete opposite end, but on the same side of the floor uh, as the interaction between Charles and the guard security. And so, you know, I'm watching the game, but I'm, you know, the monitor, I have a monitor there with me, and the commotion begins, and pretty much everyone in the garden becomes aware of it almost pretty quickly. And so consequently, obviously, my job is to get up and, and get myself down to the opposite end of the floor as quickly as possible, which I did. And I would just say this to you, you know, it felt to me um, like an incredibly uncomfortable, difficult situation, which obviously it was. And once it had calmed down and they had gotten Charles Oakley out of the arena, you know, I'm communicating to my producer via my talkback button on the mic, and we're, we're trying to decide sort of how to go forward from here. And, you know, within very short order, the New York Knicks were about to release a statement. Now, it happened at a moment in the game. I, I can't remember if we were in break, but I feel like we were maybe a minute away from break or there was something going on. And um, I, I just remember getting handed the Knicks statement, and I had maybe about a minute before I was going to be able to get the toss from Mike Green to deliver the New York Knicks statement. And because I know Jeff Van Gundy knows uh, Oak very well, I just texted him and hoped to get a response quickly. And I said, are you aware in any way, shape, or form of uh, Charles Oakley either having a substance abuse issue of any kind or any other kind of issue? And he's like, no, you know, no. And he was happened to be watching the game, so he was somewhat concerned about what he saw. And so my thinking was, and I still feel this very much, regardless of, of what has transpired, the last line of that New York Knicks uh, statement, I felt, was a bit heavy-handed and certainly intimated that perhaps Charles was in need of help. And if that were in any way, shape, or form inaccurate or leading, then it should have been left out of the statement. And so that was one thing that bothered me. The other thing that bothered me was sort of, and listen, the Knicks have the right to do whatever their organization wants to do, I guess. The other thing that sort of bothered me was sort of how clumsy uh, the former players in very short order after that instance with Charles Oakley sitting with the owner. That felt clumsy to me. Uh, so those, those would be my two takes, guys. It was a sad situation. And whatever is going on, I'm hopeful that there's somebody who can mediate some kind of real peace for a guy who was such an integral part of one of the most successful stretches of their organization. Yeah, listen, fans are not dispassionate by nature, right? They're, they feel very strongly. They desire only the absolute best for their franchise and, by extension, their players. And, you know, I was talking to somebody who happened to be in Oklahoma City uh, when Kevin Durant, when the news broke. And this person actually said to me that they saw people openly weeping in the streets. So if that gives you any sense of how beloved Kevin Durant was in Oklahoma City, um, you know, sort of that hit home for me. Um, that said, you know, there was a sort of a mean-spirited tenor of 
of the reaction of some in the arena that didn't take me by surprise. Um, you know, listen, you can be disappointed, you can be hurt, um, but I don't think, typically speaking, it's a very rare occasion where, you know, sort of that, that anger, something that hot anger is helpful in any way. It certainly didn't help translate to a win on the court. It certainly didn't have an effect on Kevin Durant's ability to be successful as a basketball player. Um, so I would tell you I was taken aback by it and uh, and hopeful that those feelings sort of diminish soon and we'll get back to the business of just playing basketball between Oklahoma City and Golden State. I don't think there will be – it would surprise me if there's – a hundred words exchanged between them uh, based on what I saw. Now, maybe that changes, but it certainly didn't look like uh, there was any love lost between either guy. Um, so, you know, clearly there's bad feelings. I wonder from, and I don't know this, this is purely speculation. If you're Russell Westbrook, are you completely, you know, offended, hurt? I don't know what the words might be. Uh, felt like you were disrespected that, uh, you know, you weren't given a call for someone you had gone to bat with and to war with. I say that, you know, using that term, um, you know, as we, we as we use it in sports vernacular, um, you know, somebody who you went to bat with every single day, you felt some level of disappointment that perhaps you didn't receive a call that, hey, I, I am going to switch teams. Thank you for everything you know, we've been through. So, I mean, I don't know the origin. I don't know if there's more to it than we're even seeing, but it doesn't appear that there's any kind of good feeling remaining on either side. Well, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to vote for it. I would say that my top three would be, and in this order at this moment, and that could change because I do think Russell is going to very have a very hard time sustaining their, their position in the standing, but it would go Russell Westbrook, James Harden, Kevin Durant at this moment. Well, I think if you look at the, the talent that he is working with, I mean, I want you to consider something that, you know, it's not extraordinary enough that the guy is a guard and a point guard at that and, you know, not a Magic Johnson-sized point guard, and the guy is getting double-digit rebounds. That's one. Number two, I want you to think about some of the pieces that really can't shoot around him. I mean, Roberson, or excuse me, Robertson can't shoot. Like, he doesn't shoot the ball well. And um, Stephen Adams, though he's evolving and improving as an offensive player, he still has a long way to go. Um, I just think that with the pieces he has, done, has, he's done more with less. Now, when I tell you my vote right now is 1 and 1A, one it's not 1 and 2, it's 1 and 1A. One that's the kind of season James Harden is having. So 
I don't thankfully have to cast that vote. I just think relative to their record and uh, complementary pieces, uh, what Russell is doing is unlike anything I've ever seen. No, I am. I don't see a team that can beat Golden State. You know, I, health is going to dictate some of the East. I like the move that Toronto made to acquire Serge Ibaka. If if the Cleveland Cavaliers are healthy, I still don't think that that move is enough to vaunt to vault them. I still think Boston is too devoid of scoring to outside of Isaiah Thomas, and they have tremendous pieces. And I like how they're playing. They're playing very well, but the playoffs are a completely different animal. You guys know this. You know the game and the attention to detail and the defensive gaming planning that is done is, if I won't say totally different, it's certainly executed at an incredibly high rate. Um, and you literally start to tweak your game plan on a day-by-day basis, which changes things in the playoffs. Um, but I, I don't see anyone beating Golden State. East or West, I think they're that good. First of all, you know, I and I said this fairly strongly a season ago, the idea that this is hurting the women's game is laughable to me. Connecticut is, by very nature of its excellence and sustained excellence, drawing a level of attention to the women's game that is unprecedented. On Monday night, the worldwide leader in sports decided that it would throw the weight of the entire company behind what it considered a special achievement. So when you're doing something that captures in this cluttered sports landscape uh, the attention of the worldwide leader in sports, ESPN, you are doing something right. And if I'm a women's basketball coach, I owe Gina Oriema a debt of gratitude because we have a window of opportunity here in the, in the national consciousness because of how team, good his team is to, to try to garner some attention for ourselves. It's on every coach in the country to – raise their level of coaching. And one thing that drives me absolutely crazy is everybody saying, well, he just gets the best players. No, he doesn't. You, he has four uh, kids on his roster who were high school All-Americans. There are many teams in the country that have more All-Americans than he does. What Gino Oriama has always done is he selectively chooses the pieces and I like the way my partner, Carol Lawson, phrased this. She said, I liken him to an NBA GM where he's actually selecting. Now, listen, the success he has uh, garnered has allowed him to become a little bit more successful. But his success goes far beyond that. Um, I don't think it's bad for the women's game. I do think there remains teams out there who would relish the chance to visit with him again in a, in a national semifinal or national championship, and those two teams would be Baylor and Maryland. 
Notre Dame and South Carolina have enough talent to beat them, but for whatever reason, um, they have not played particularly well. Uh, Baylor and Maryland were, were in a possession ball game with UConn earlier this year, and uh, now I'm not. I think Connecticut will win the national championship, and if they do, and I said this on Sunday in an article for the Hartford Journal on Monday, if they don't beat Gina Oriam and the Connecticut Huskies this year, look out because they have a Duke transfer, Azari Stevens, who will be the best player in the country. They add the best freshman in the country in Megan Walker with a very strong recruiting class. And if you give Gino Oriama that kind of talent, I'm not sure when he will next move. I believe they're legitimate. I, I I have a very hard time at times understanding the decision-making of the NCAA. I understand the value of the organization, but given that there has been so little consistency in decisions, and not just this kind of decision, but any number of decisions, which transfers become eligible immediately and why and why not? Uh, which players uh, uh, you know, can transfer you know, it's just there are too many inconsistencies for me. And the reality is 1,000-plus times Jim Beheim has won a basketball game. You know, he, he had his punishment. He absorbed his punishment. He missed time. That, to me, should suffice. I consider the real number of wins 1,000-plus. It's up to everybody, I think, individually as a sports fan to, to make that determination themselves. I'm going to give you guys as much respect on this podcast as I do on the Mike and Mike radio program, which I'm on, and they ask me about it every time. And I'm going to tell you, I, you can ask as much as you want. I'm divulging nothing about Drake and I. <laughs> Perfect. Enjoy Drake. I'm sure your ratings on the podcast will be higher than the ratings for my appearance. Somehow I think he has a few more followers than I do, guys. <laughs> Thank you for having me, gentlemen.